And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. And, of course, it is uh, Monday. So we're back to the grind again as everybody's getting back to driving to work this morning. Of course, uh, this is also right on the cusp of now they're talking about more mask mandates, potentially shutting down the economy again. I don't know how this is going to go. But over the weekend, the Olympics started. Of course, everybody's all excited about the Olympics. Simone Biles, of course, she did a great job in the Olympics, but disappointed in her scores. I mean, she did. She still did great, but to her personal standards, her scores were not up to up to her standards. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing here. And what's interesting is that's kind of the same thing that's going on with the economy right now. Um, as how about that for a segue? Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, this has been one of the things about the uh, the economy as well. Now, earlier this year, we've been talking about the fact that really ever since you know last year, as as we start to see all the stimulus begin to roll off here and began to see you know kind of the reality of the economy starting to show back up, that economic growth would disappoint estimates, and that's exactly what's happened here. Um, this is the Atlanta Fed estimate, and which was over 10% for the second quarter. Now, remember, we're talking about year-over-year growth rates. So this is comparing quarter two of 2021 to quarter two of 2020, where we actually shut down the economy, right? There's no economic activity. Everything's shut down. So you should expect after a 30% decline in GDP last year that you're going to have a decent, you know, year-over-year gain. And that was expected to be over 10%, actually is as high as 13.5% when estimates first came out. That is now down to 7.6%. Now, that's the point here, is that all these estimates about economic growth and the resurgence of the economy, and we're all going to be back to you know, doing great things, is all been a function of stimulus. And as you start to see stimulus fade off, well, you've also seen economic growth rates fade off. This was where we started getting those realities starting to set in here. Now, that's going to have some impacts here across not just the economy, but also for earnings. Now, again, when you're talking, talking about second quarter GDP growth at 7.6% here, and this is a fairly, this is a, an estimate as of July the, 20, the 20th. So, I mean, this is not very far um, removed from where we are currently. So the estimates here for April, May, and June are, are going to come down. And that is going to suggest that with markets at all-time highs here, that market cap to G, uh, you know, GDP growth is going to even accelerate further. We're already at the highest level of valuation in terms of market cap to GDP on record. Now, why is that important, right? Well, the economy is what happens. That's you and me going out, going back to work. We're driving our cars this morning, going to work. We're doing the things we're supposed to do. We're paying our house notes. We're, you know, we're buying groceries. We're doing those things, right? That's where earnings come from for all these companies, right? So if we take a look at top line revenue for these companies, that's where it comes from. So when you're talking about market cap to GDP, the economy is 70% consumption. So that's where revenue comes from. So again, if the economy is only growing at 7.6%, but earnings are you know, expected to be dramatically higher than the economy, well, that's not going to last for very long. So the point here is, is that over the rest of this year, 
We've now gone from what was an estimate of over 13.5% down to 7.6%. Now, next quarter, right, beginning this month, really, July, August, and September is going to be the third quarter. And that's where we had a 30% rebound in the economy because of stimulus, which means that next quarter's estimates are going to be even lower than this one. So, again, this is all going to come back to a function of the fact of valuations and markets and where we are currently at. And again, while we all have a lot of hopes initially that things were going to be fantastic, reality is now starting to set in. And look, and the media is going to tell you, it's like, wow, the economy just pointed off 7.6% growth in the economy. Yeah, that's great. And again, there's, that is going to be a very strong rate of economic growth, but that is far removed from what they were telling you it was going to be just a couple of months ago. So again, it's always important to remember where we're coming from on these things because again, we've priced the markets now based on 13.5% growth, but now we're only getting 7.6%. That's the same way with earnings, same way with revenue growth, same way with all this. Over the course of this year, we're going to see earnings growth begin to, to come back into reality as to match these lower rates of economic growth. Earnings estimates are going to come down, but yet right now, a lot of investors are paying for those earnings estimates that they thought it was going to be back here at 13.5%, right? So again, you're paying a whole lot more in terms of valuations for stocks and investments and portfolios. That's really kind of a point of our article today that's on the website talking about earnings and forward multiples. You know, there's a, there's a challenge here for investors. And, you know, you're, you're told often that, well, you know, based on forward estimates, you know, the stock market's not really at 35 times earnings. It's only 22 times earnings based on forward estimates. Well, that's fine. But there's a truth to forward valuations, 22 times earnings. What does that mean, right? Yes, it's less than 35, but what does that mean? Well, 22, 23 times earnings, that means that if you invest a dollar into a company today and the company pays you your pro rata share of their earnings directly into your account, it will only take you 22 years to get your money back. That's what that means, right? You're not buying a bargain at 22 times earnings. That is previous market valuation levels at every major bull, mar uh, major bull market peak in history, right? The only, the only time it hasn't been this high was in 1999, right? So again, we're really overpaying for what the economy can actually deliver, but yet what the media is telling you is like, oh, don't worry, it's cheaper because, you know, it was 30 times earnings here, it's only 22 times earnings here, so see, that's cheaper. But see, the problem is, is that you're not going to get those earnings that is making it 22 times earnings in the future right now or 23, or 25, or whatever it is, right? You're not going to get those earnings because those earnings are going to come down. And you're going to be overpaying. And what you'll find out is, is that you wound up overpaying for these assets over the course of the next couple of years. And this is what happens with investors and with markets of time. We get swept up into the moment. We're buying things because the media tells us, oh, it's cheap based on forward estimates, but those estimates are guesses. Just like it was a guess at 13.5% times, 13 uh, economic growth earlier this year, it's now 7.6. This is exactly what's going to happen with earnings here over the next few months. So again, this is just the things to really kind of keep in mind. And this is also going to show up in terms of CPI because CPI here currently, uh, as we're talking about inflation, inflation is part of economic growth. And if you don't have strong economic growth, you're not going to have strong rates of inflation. And what you're looking at here on estimates in terms of inflation is a return back towards trend of 2% ultimately on inflation or less. 
And that's what's going to happen with the economy as well. By the time we get to the end of this year and get into next year, we're going to start talking about trend growth in the economy at 2% or less. And that's going to be hard to justify earnings and valuations at current levels. And again, now this excludes, you know, more stimulus and more direct checks to households and more, you know, speculative investing in the markets. We're talking about just real true underlying growth and valuations of markets. That's what this is talking about. So when we come back from the break, I've got a bunch more charts to get into with you this morning. Got a lot of topics to cover. So stick around more of the Real Investment Show. When we come back, we'll talk about the market rally on Thursday and Friday last week. Record highs on the market. What does it mean now as we head into the last two months of summer. Be right back after the break. Listening to the Real Investment Show. And welcome to the show this morning. It's uh, six seventeen as we get this uh, last week of July. Get ready to get it underneath our belts and uh, get into the last month of August. My kids already dreading going back to school. Of course, you know, with these Delta variant concerns now spiking up around the country, of course, now there's talk about potentially, well, more mask mandates, maybe keeping kids home from school, going back to, you know, virtual learning. Hell no. Hell no. And I am not alone in this. And, you know, it's one thing, you know, if your kids are under five, right, and they're not going to school or preschool right now, hey, I get it, right? You're just like, ah, no big deal, right? When your kids actually go to school, it's a different thing. And, yeah, after a year of them doing at-home learning, we're not going back to that, period. I mean, I will set them on the corner with a sign that says, we'll learn for food, and we will teach them that way but hell no they're not sitting in the, inside their bedrooms for another year ain't gonna happen i have and i have a feeling i'm not alone in this and i have a feeling if you try to do this that there's gonna be riots all across the country so we'll, we'll see but but nonetheless there are you know concerns about the delta variant of course we are seeing a spike in cases and uh you know there there are some some issues about that so uh, you know it's, it's going to be one of the things that potentially weighs on both economic growth and uh, or the outlook for economic growth, rather, and uh, the stock market as well. Um, concerns about potentially, you know, going back to an economic shutdown, those type of issues, that's certainly not going to bode well for markets. But again, it, you know, it, I think it's going to be a hard, it's just my opinion, but I think it's going to be a hard step to go back to trying to actually shut down the economy. You know, states are talking, you know, about, you know, mass mandates. A lot of states are leaving it up to residents to figure it out. We'll see what happens. But it is a risk to the financial markets nonetheless. And I think it's something at least worth, you know, paying attention to from the standpoint that it could affect the price of the stock market. Now, remember, We've talked about this numerous times. Markets are very uh, stretched valuation-wise. They're very stretched price-wise. 
and what it takes. And again, we've got record margin debt. Um, just posted a chart on that this weekend. You know, what it takes to create a 5 to a 10%, you know, correction in the markets or more. And again, we've, we've been talking about now for the last several months, we've gone a very, very long time. It was August of last year was the last time we had a 5% correction in the market. So it's been almost a full year. And what it takes to trigger a correction in the markets are prices being overly bought, overly extended, you know, deviated from long-term uh, long-term means. So, right, you've kind of stretched the rubber band as far as you can in one direction. Things like margin debt, you know, provide fuel to the fire. And what you need is an exogenous event that comes along that people really weren't counting on too much to, to create a psychological transition from buying to selling. And, you know, is that going to be the Delta variant, you know, just as it sells, right? The Delta variant, right? We've got, we've got more cases spiking. That's not, going to, that's not going to impact the markets that much, right? Because we're aware of that. What it's going to take is something that comes along that the markets weren't really counting on. And that would be, for instance, you know, the Biden administration coming out tomorrow saying, hey, we're going to shut down the economy again for another four months, right? Just so we get past this Delta variant thing. I'm not saying they're going to do that. I'm just saying that that's, that's the type of thing that can occur that can create a very sharp, unexpected sell-off in the market. So it's worth paying attention to. The other side of that is also paying attention to interest rates. Interest rates are also telling you, now we, we were just talking about a second ago about you know economic expectations not really living up to the hype. Right. Or, and, and again, we were at 13 and a half percent expectations for economic growth in Q2. Now we're down to 7.6 percent. That's nearly a 50 percent drop in the estimates for economic growth. Now, again, the media won't remind you of that. I'll be happy to because we've been telling you now for the last quarter that economic expectations will be far weaker than than what was originally proposed. And that's exactly what's turned out to be the case. And we've been saying that because what's been also telling you the same thing, interest rates. Interest rates peaked back in April. Interest rates have now been declining for the last quarter. And that's been telling you that economic growth was going to be weaker than what was originally expected. So these are, the, these are those key factors that you want to pay attention to. Treasury yields are telling you there's not something quite right in the economy. The markets are completely discounting that right now, saying, oh, bonds are wrong. Bonds are very rarely wrong, and they're not wrong for long, generally. So, again, what would it take to really upset the markets? You know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if it's a shutdown of the economy or is something something else that com comes along completely unexpected, you know? Could be a lot of things. Geopolitical risk, could be financial risk, could be a credit risk, could be a variety of things. Could be the Fed coming out in, in uh, the next month or so saying, you know what, we got to start tapering. Could be. Markets don't expect it. But that's what it would take. Um, the other thing to really pay attention to, and, and again, we were talking about this, this this weekend as well, is really pay attention to what's going on with you know wages as well. When you start talking about economic growth, 
in order to have strong rates of sustained economic growth, you've got to have people making more money. And we, you know, we've heard a lot of kind of media headlines lately about there's been strong wage growth in the economy, really, for the last couple of quarters. It's true. It's all been in leisure and hospitality mostly. Most of your lower-end wage-paying sectors have seen wage increases because they've been trying to lure people to come back to work to get them off of benefits. Over the weekend, Ms. Shedlock had a really interesting uh, post out talking about in Chicago. Why is it always Chicago, by the way? But in Chicago, <laughs> workers in Chicago make on average about $55,000 a year. If they stay home working, if they stay home from working, sorry, and just collect all the government you know, benefits, they make about $51,000 a year to do nothing. So that's that incentive not to work, right? I can make almost as much money sitting at home than I do actually working and having to go to work every day. And since I'm at home, that $4,000 of difference, I'm not eating out, I'm not driving my car, I'm not doing those things. So really it's about even. But once you get out of that lower wage paying scale and start looking at real wages as compared to inflation, wages aren't keeping up with the rate of inflation right now. Now, look, inflation is going to come back down over the course of the next several months for a variety of reasons. Now, there's going to be some areas of the economy that are going to maintain their inflationary pressures. And these are going to be the things that you'll see CPI come down. You're going to go, Lance, you're crazy because have you been to the grocery store lately? Yeah, food prices are sticky. They're going to stay high. Gas prices are going to go up and they're going to stay high. They're not going to come down. Those are the things that we don't really measure that much when we talk about quote unquote CPI, right? That's that, you know, core versus reality type CPI thing that we always get in that debate over. Hey, I get it. I completely understand. Yes, I go to the grocery store and buy stuff. I understand that, right? And that's an important point because the impact to the consumer from inflation and the impact of making ends meet at home is very different than how we measure CPI for government measures. But the point is, is that neither case is actually keeping up with what's really happening inflation-wise. And again, if you have a period of time where inflation remains at a level that is impacting disposable incomes, in other words, wages aren't keeping up with inflation, that's going to, to drop the rate of consumer spending because I can only spend so much. And this is one of the problems that we've talked about with retail sales. We talk about retail sales and we go, wow, retail sales were up you know, 1% this month from last month. Okay, they were up 1% this month from last month. Great. Well, the problem is, is that we measure CPI and we measure inflation and we measure retail sales in terms of dollar volume, not actual volume. So if inflation goes up 1% this month and I buy exactly the same amount of, of retail goods from one month to the next, I'll have a 1% increase in sales because I'm paying 1% more for everything because inflation went up. It doesn't mean that I'm buying more stuff. It just means that I'm paying more for the stuff that I'm buying. So when it comes down to real economic growth, I'm not really creating more economic growth. All I'm doing is, is maintaining economic growth. I'm just paying more to maintain that economic growth. And the problem for consumers, when we go back to talking about 
wage growth not keeping up with inflation, that means they have to go more into debt just to make ends meet. And that's why we have that. I have that chart that I show you from time to time talking about the gap between you know, savings and incomes versus the cost of living. And there's about a $4,000 annual deficit for the average American just to make ends meet. In other words, they have to go into debt by $4,000 a year just to make ends meet. And this is why you have so much credit card debt in households. They're not buying, they're not going around, running around buying a bunch of new stuff on credit, right? They're just trying to make ends meet. They're buying groceries on credit cards. And so this is where we start talking about you know, the economy and start thinking about these things, but, you know, and, and starting to talk about the financial markets. And we come back from the break, you know, we'll get into this rally last week and, you know, specifically, you know, what happened, who was buying it, but does it mean that necessarily, you know, we're all good to go here? So we'll come back and we'll get actually get into the financial markets coming in next. Um, look, had a great little rally last week. What does it mean? That's the question we've got to answer. We'll talk about that right after the break. We'll talk about what is the heck is a Minsky moment as well. Don't go away. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to show this morning. You know, Brent, we are just uh, just listening to that commercial where we're talking about Swimply, as we yes. were talking about Swimply.com, slogging yes. English language. Saw, saw a video over the weekend of a teacher talking about you know, kids' names, uh-huh. the kids that are coming to school, and he was going through some of the names. So he's writing up on a... A whiteboard says, please pronounce this child's name. It's L-A. And that's the, the kid's spelling, L-A. Pronounce the name. It's Ladasha. Okay? <laughs> Wait, it gets better. He goes, I have another student in my class whose name is capital S-S-S-T. Pronounce that name. Sorry, capital S-S-S-S-T. What's that name? I have no idea. Forrest. <laughs> Four S's and a T, right? Forest. Right. Uh, has another child in his class? J K M N. Pronounce that name. J K M N. Royal Flush? Noel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So can we? So if we can continue to slaughter the English language, I don't know what we're going to do eventually, but we'll get there. Don't even get me started about math. <laughs> yeah, that's that's already done. Yeah. They beat you to that one. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, back to work. So just before the break, talking a little bit about the financial markets now, and you know this this whole idea that you know. We kind of started off talking about economic disappointment, right? So the economic growth numbers are going to come in a lot weaker than what was originally estimated. We don't care, right? Nobody goes back and looks at those original estimates and go, well, you know, the economists were dead freaking wrong about economic estimates, 
right? Even though we were telling you a month, a quarter ago, we were telling you the economic growth numbers would be weaker. You know, nobody believed us then and nobody will believe us now. And that's okay. But, you know, again, we don't hold people accountable for those estimates, right? But we run our price, the stock prices up based on that. So, you know, here we are, we're looking at, you know, a, a market that is more overvalued than at just about any other point in history outside the dot-com crash. And there's actually a lot of metrics like market cap to GDP, Tobin's Q, um, you know, uh, price to sales that are far beyond 1999 valuations. But see, that was all, that was all predicated on these much stronger rates of economic growth, but we didn't get that. Right. And so we don't pay attention to those potential risks. But uh, this is what I'm talking about in this weekend's newsletter, though. Look, in the short term, everything's fine. In the very short term, none of this really matters. Um, markets did have a very nice rebounded off the 50 day moving average last week. Retail investors came charging into the markets last week, ran prices back up to all time highs. Uh, we're back to two standard deviations above the 50-day. This is normally kind of where markets kind of start to struggle here a little bit. So it doesn't mean that, you know, markets are going to fall out of bed tomorrow. We're have a major crash. But what it does suggest, though, is that we continue to price in perfection in the markets and not really allowing the markets to have a more healthy correction to provide a better buying opportunity. Um, you know, our, mon our money flow sell signals are, <clears throat> are trying to turn up here. And again, you know, this isn't surprising. You know, we went through kind of a period of, of consolidation for a couple of weeks. We did sell off. We had about a 3% correction. That worked off some of that, uh, that, that sell signal that we had pretty quickly. Won't be surprising here if we get a little bit of a turn. Could see the markets rally here a bit more over the next week or so. Particularly, we've got a lot of strong earnings this week, right? We've got Apple, Microsoft, all, Google. They're all announcing this week. So you got lots of major tech earnings this week. And look, the market's being driven primarily by those big mega cap tech companies. That's what's been driving the markets as of late. This rally's been very much a NASDAQ-led rally at this point. So again, more upside in the markets short term, certainly not with, not out of the realm of possibility at all. So you shouldn't be bearish at this point. You know, my whole point about the conversation this morning is, is you should not be bearish in the short term, right? But longer term looking out, the economic and earnings data aren't going to support prices. That's just, a, that's just a function of reality. But in the near term, we don't care about that, right? Markets are continuing to advance here in a very low volatility type run. And, and that's something to pay attention to, right? This idea of low volatility. We've got a, a period in the market where we haven't had a 5% correction in almost a year. Most of the corrections we've had have been between 1% and 3%. They've been very small. We have to go back to 2017 to actually see another period where you had that kind of ultra low volatility level. And this is what's called a Minsky moment. Hyman Minsky discussed this idea of low volatility in the market. So again, when, when you take a look at the 2017 market period, the market just kind of ground its way higher along the 50-day moving average. And it looks a whole lot like the market looks right now. Just these little dips down to the 50-day moving average and it bounced and it went up. What Hyman Minsky talked about is that periods of stability driven by exuberance typically lead to periods of high volatility following that. 
And we can take a look at a history of this, and you can see these low volatility, high volatility regimes that just continue to kind of really migrate. And I've, you know, starting back in 2017, you had this very low period of uh, this this period of low volatility, and then you got into a period of low volatility in 2018, 2019. Uh, hardly, right? You had an extremely high level of volatility during those periods. And of course, that ultimately culminated in the in the March 2020, you know, sell-off. But the point that Hyman Minsky was making was is that periods of low volatility typically are not followed by another period of low volatility. And what gets you to the next period of high volatility can be a variety of things. It's typically, you know, the exogenous event didn't show up until 2020. Right. That was the whole pandemic shutdown. But in 2018 and 2019, we had nice pickups in volatility because of the Fed trying to hike rates. We had the taper tantrum in 2018, had a 20% decline. And we had the, the whole issue with the trade wars and we had those sell offs. Right. So nice pickups in volatility, market kind of ground sideways for almost, almost three years, actually before we kind of broke out of that consolidation. Now we've had this nice kind of this period again of, of low volatility. But again, let's go back to 2017 real quick. Talk about that period of low volatility. That followed 2015, 2016, where you had two back-to-back 20% declines in late 2015 and early 2016. So you had this period of high volatility through Fed taper tantrum again that led to a period of low volatility. So again, these periods of low volatility, high volatility typically alternate with each other. Now, does it mean that this period of high volatility is going to immediately transfer over into to a period of, of, of high volatility? Again, like we saw in 2018, 2019, could be tomorrow, could be a year from now. Again, timing is always the issue. It's just a question of when you actually get there. But, you know, this, this idea of stability is all derived from this idea that we've got the Federal Reserve and they're supporting markets and it's all fine. And there's there's a certain value to that argument. But monetary policy does not create economic growth. And this is problematic longer term. If you take a look at the bank loan to deposit ratio, right? So this is how much banks have in deposits versus how much they're lending out. Now, we live in a world of what we call fractional reserve banking, which means that if you deposit a dollar into my bank, that I can basically lend out $10 based on that dollar. I only have to have a fraction of the deposits versus the loans that I give out. And that's how the banking system should work, right? That they leverage those deposits to make loans. So if I make you a loan, right? So Brent makes a deposit into the bank. He gives me $100. I loan you $1,000 to go out and start a business. That creates economic growth. So we should see in a period where the Federal Reserve is flooding the system with or flooding the banks, specifically with lots of liquidity, right? Because when the, when the Federal Reserve buys bonds from the Treasury, they, they credit the bank 
reserve accounts, right? So that gives them plenty of reserves to go lend out. And they're supposed to be loaning that money out, but that ain't happening. Banks aren't loaning money out. Why? Because they, why would I loan money to you for 30 years at 2.8% on a mortgage when you're probably not going to pay me back? <laughs> when I can just go invest it in the markets and I can make a much better return. And this is exactly what's been going on. When the Fed's in the midst of these QE programs, the banks don't loan out money. So the, that loan deposit ratio drops. And, and as a consequence, what drops along with it? Monetary velocity. That's the amount that money is actually moving through the system. So, you know, we talk about this wealth inequality gap. We talk about the problems with the economy. We've had all these people running around, screaming at the top of their lungs, yelling, ranting, rioting, you know, et cetera. But that's all because of this wealth inequality gap that we have talked about before. But that's a function of the fact that monetary velocity is not moving through the system. And this is why we talk about QE programs, that these aren't expansionary. And, you know, for all the Fed's talk that, you know, they're trying, they're doing these QE programs to, to create, you know, employment and economic stability and all this stuff. They are simply driving the wealth inequality gap, and they certainly don't incent banks to actually go out and create loans that would actually help grow the economy. They're, they're actually keeping monetary velocity from growing. And that has a broader impact across the whole economy itself. Be right back after break. Wrap up the show. Take questions and comments. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, let's get your question and comments. Got some good questions this morning uh, from you, and I always appreciate you joining us on the YouTube channel. Uh, I know if you're driving in your car to work today and, you know, being productive, as you should be, that's great. Um, if you're listening to our radio show in both Houston and Austin, we appreciate you listening. And certainly don't encourage you trying to chat with us on your phone while driving. So don't do that. But if you haven't been watching our show on our YouTube channel, which you can always get to and even watch the show after the fact, we post a fully edited version of the show on the website as well. Simply go to our YouTube channel. Uh, go to realinvestmentadvice.com, click on YouTube, subscribe, and you can follow us there, chat, and join the show. And so at the end of the show, I can always uh, answer questions as well there. So if you post a question, happy to answer it. A um, couple of questions. Uh, fundamentals have peaked here. Um, now, what about the additional trillions coming from the American Rescue Plan, right? So this is where we're hung up on infrastructure currently at the moment. So there was a bipartisan bill, which was a complete farce. This was just a complete machination of the Democrats to try to show that they're working across the aisle. So they did this whole kind of a farcical, you know, trans, uh, infrastructure bill, $1.2 trillion of infrastructure. And they acted like they were actually going to pass this thing. Ha, joke's on you. 
it was never intended to pass. And this is what we've talked about here on the show before, is that the Democrats want to just wait this out until they can get into the budgetary process. Now, we're about, we're about to come up on a debt ceiling issue, which means we'll have to pass another continuing resolution. That's the budget, because we don't actually have a budget. We don't do budgets. We haven't done a budget since uh, Obama took office in 2009. So we just do these continuing resolutions, which basically increases spending by 8% a year, and we just use the same budget and then add 8% to it, and that's the new budget, right? Well, underneath that, when they go to um, pass the continuing resolution bill, they can stick a bunch of stuff in there, and they'll, they'll include this American Rescue Plan, which has infrastructure in it. But it's not just infrastructure. It's social infrastructure. It's human infrastructure. It's all this other nonsense. This has nothing to do with the budget, but they're trying to actually include it in the budget. Now, this is the key point. In order to pass it with a simple majority, it has to be budget related. So they've got to call it something where they can say, no, 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 this is actually budgetary. So they've got to call it something like human infrastructure to try to get that pushed through the parliamentarian and have it part of the reconciliation process so they can just pass it with a simple majority. So, yes, we could very well see a $3 trillion plus bill come in September, October. Very possible. There is a risk, though, that it doesn't happen. There are some moderate Democrats that are opposed to another three, four, five trillion dollars of debt. There are some moderate Democrats that have got to go home and face constituents saying, you know, I didn't vote for this. So this is going to make it problematic to try to pass this under reconciliation. We'll see what happens. I'm not saying it can't happen. And there's a very high probability that that you're right and that we'll, we'll get this under this family's plan, get a whole lot more bailouts coming. But yeah, we're going to send more checks to households in terms of child tax credits and those type of things, and that's fine. That's different than $1,400 direct checks. You know, a couple hundred bucks a month is one thing. $1,400 is a different thing. So will it have an effect on creating some short-term economic growth? Yeah, because, again, you're going to provide more money into the economy. The economy will step up. Inflation will come up. And then basically everybody goes back to square zero in the next year. So you may be able to you know, create some economic activity for another year. And markets will certainly respond positively to that. And so we've got to be aware of that. And that brings me to mother, that, the other good question here, which is, look, I've got some cash on the sidelines, to, but I'm afraid to put it to work right now. And look, I get it. I'm afraid to put cash to work every day as well, but we have to because we have to manage money for our clients. Investing is about understanding where you are. The problem with long-term valuations is that we know that long-term valuations over the next decade are going to drive a, a crisis point for the markets. Now, when we talk about you know high valuations leads to low forward returns, and that's actually today's article on the website, that doesn't mean that you're going to have low returns every year. It just means you're going to have a big crash in there somewhere, 20, 30, 40, 50% that's going to drag your returns down on an annualized basis over that 10-year period. So we've got to understand is that we've got to be aware of that potential risk that's out there and we have to manage for it. So if you've got money to put to work, you need to put it to work. And you've got to look for opportunities to put it to work. Now, I wouldn't do it today. But the next time you get a, a, a correction back to the 50-day moving average or a, another correction of some sort, 
put a little bit of money to work. If you get another correction, put a little bit more money to work. Nothing says that you have to put all your money to work today, but you do need it working for you. And there's also the idea of owning bonds, right? Actual bonds, not bond funds. Bond funds don't mature, but I can buy a bond at with a good company, AT&T, Verizon, whoever, and I can put that capital to work. And when that bond matures, I get my principal back plus my interest. Is it a lot of money? No, because yields are low. But I have a guaranteed principal repayment. And here's an interesting point about that. People that bought corporate bonds in 2020, stock market investors just caught them last month in terms of total return. Think about that. People that bought corporate bonds in 2020 outperformed stock market investors for 20 years. Stock market investors just caught them on a total return basis. And it took getting back to historically high valuations to do that. So very likely over the course of the next decade, bond investors are going to, again, outperform stock investors. And that's not surprising. So, again, there's, you know, as investors, and, and look, and, and my job as a portfolio manager and, and Michael Leibowitz's job as a portfolio manager and what we do for our clients is we have to invest that capital. We've got to put it to work. We've got to make it work. But we got to do it in a manner, and this is why we talk about risk on the show. You know, a lot of people, disre you know, kind of mistake us for being bearish, and we're not bearish. What we're talking about is the risk. Right. We're invested. I, I, you know, we're what we, you know, if you want to call us bearish, that's fine. But just understand we're fully invested bears. But all we're looking for and what we talk about is saying, look, these things don't make sense. This is the risk that you're pushing up on. And this will eventually take your money away from you. Is it tomorrow? Is it next day? Is it next week? No, I don't. And I've said this before. Don't know when. Right. This exogenous, unexpected event is going to crop up. One more, you're going to wake up. The market's going to be down three percent or 4% or 5%. And these periods where we have very large declines in markets very quickly are going to become the norm because of how fast markets move and primarily because of all this passive indexing. When investors wake up and go, I'm out and I'm selling my ETFs, every time they dump that ETF, they got to sell all the underlying stocks. So it just multiplies the selling pressure in the markets. And again, remember... There's a lot of people willing to buy at these prices, and it's taking these prices. I've got to drive the price up in order to find a seller. I've got to drag, you know, Brent loves Apple, right? He, he is not going to sell his Apple, but everybody has a price to sell. And if I can get the price of Apple to some price, there's somebody out there willing to sell at that price. The problem becomes when everybody that bought wants to sell because now there's no buyers left. When the price starts to come down, buyers go, I'm out. And there, and, and there's some guy out there, Brent Sloan, saying, yeah, I'll, I'll buy my Apple shares back, but it's going to be down here. You know, if you get it down from 180 to 140, I'll be a buyer for you. And that's why prices, when, when we began a sell cycle in this market, and this is going to become the norm. We're going to have these big gaps on the downside in the markets because there's no buyers. There's no liquidity in the markets. That's why everybody right now is hiding out in Apple and Microsoft and Google because these big mega cap tech names, 
there's a lot of volume there. There's a lot of what we call liquidity. In other words, there's lots of buyers and sellers willing to buy and sell at any price. But there's a the the the, the other 490 companies in the S&P 500, there ain't that kind of liquidity in them. And so this is where you wake up one morning and Boeing's down 50% because there's no buyers there. So these are things you got to be careful of. But no, you know, going back, it's a great question. You've got to put money to work. You just need to do it with a realization that there's risk and control that risk accordingly. Use your stops. Put stop limits in uh, when you buy stocks. Uh, or at least have a mental stop if you don't want to put a physical one in. And scale your way in. You don't have to get in all at once. Just gradually work your way. Pick your spots. Pick your opportunities. Make your investments. And hey, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with not doing it. If you don't see a good opportunity or a good spot, there's nothing wrong with sitting in cash because eventually you'll get the opportunity. And this is the whole problem with buy and hold. You know, if I just ride the markets up and down, I never raise any cash when markets run up. I don't take profits. I don't have any money to buy anything with when I do get an opportunity. So you can manage it however you want, but that's just the way we do it. Um, can you explain the difference between bond yields? Very quick, and interest rates. They are the same thing. Um, interest rates are what we talk about, like the 10-year treasury rate. That is, we say, those are interest rates. That's just the yield of the 10-year treasury. Bond yields and interest rates are the same thing. There's really no difference. It's just there's a correlation between interest rates uh, or between yields. So the yield on a 10-year treasury very quickly is risk-free. We say there's no risk in a 10-year treasury. So any other yield above that is, a, is adjusting for the risk of that investment. So corporate bond yields have a higher yield than treasuries because there's more risk in corporate default than there is in a risk-free treasury so that's the only difference wraps up the show for the day be back tomorrow of course technically speaking tuesday our new article post is out on the website along with our newsletter great newsletter this weekend i have to say i did a really good job it's on the website now click on the newsletter link realinvestmentadvice.com we'll see you tomorrow Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.